But listen, today we have a lot to cover. Uh, at this point in time, we're going to be in our book of Joshua, which is, we, this is our 40th message in the book of Joshua. This study has been called A Life Lived for God. And what we found in the book of Joshua is the fact that um, at this point in time, they've entered into Canaan. Uh, they've crossed over the Jordan River. Joshua has led them to where they are today. Now, this is a promise that was made 675 years earlier to them. They were told, or God made a promise to Abraham, that this would be their land. And now they're in their land, but now they're facing the first obstacles. The first real obstacle they're going to face is Jericho. It's a pagan city, a very, very, very strong city. God gave them some very unconventional instructions on how it is they were to win this city. The people don't necessarily know, but Joshua knows. They were to circle this city. It turned out to be 13 times in total. And at this point in time in our story, we are 13 times around. And God got them right to the point in time at the 13th time where he told them to shout. And then God hit the pause button. And then last week, we were in a message that was titled Off Limits. And in that Off Limits message, we were in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. And there's the pause. This is an addendum that God included in Scripture that kind of gives us a little bit more information about the circumstances and the situation that they're getting ready to face. And as we looked into this, uh, this pause, what we saw was God identified two people groups for us. He identified the accursed and he identified the redeemed. Now, the accursed were those that were in Jericho. These were the citizens of Jericho. These are people that had uh, seen and heard the message of God being brought to them, and they had kept their hearts hardened. They'd not received the message of God. And what we saw was there's a picture of the lost world in Jericho. There's a picture of the population of this planet in Jericho, of people that have not turned their hearts to God, that literally stand with their, their lives walled off walled off from him. And what we saw was there's this correlation to us and this realization, the fact that God brings his word. God brings his, his message of love. He brings his message of salvation. He does it through his word. He does it through his spirit. He does it through his people. And there will be some that will hear, but most won't. And so we saw the accursed group pictured there. And what we find is the fact that they're going to face judgment. Just like this world is going to face judgment, guess what? Jericho is going to face judgment as well. That's right where we're at. But then we saw the redeemed, and the redeemed were pictured in a lady named Rahab. Rahab was a harlot, a woman that who was worthy of death, yet would who would be spared from death, and her family as well. And what happened with Rahab is she received the messengers as well as the message. And not only did she receive the message, but she believed the message, and by faith what happened was she would be spared. God was going to bring judgment upon Jericho, but he was going to make sure that she and her family were going to be protected. And we see this in Rahab a picture or a representation of believers, a representation of us. Pictured in her, we saw someone who heard a message, who received it, who took it to their heart, and because of what they believed and they understood, they would be spared. And that's exactly what happens for us. When we receive the message of Christ, God redeems us from our sin, and in doing so, saves us from a penalty of judgment that is to come upon this world. So we saw the delineation between the, the accursed and the redeemed. And then God kind of gave some, some additional information. What he did was in that uh, next portion of that message off limits, what he did was he gave parameters of behavior for his people. As they would enter into Jericho, what was going to happen is there was going to be all kinds of temptations placed before them. And we looked at the impact of disobedience and the impact of holiness. And what we saw was the fact that sin is customized. Uh, temptation is customized. It is set to lure us. If you've ever noticed, if there's something that you fall prey to, it tends to come time and time again. These lures are set before us. Because understand, the enemy's goal is always to separate us from God. It's always to divide us 
away from a relationship with him. So what we find here is there, he's trying to get them off track, to get us to prioritize the things of this world over the things of God. And when he does that, what does he do? He separates or affects our relationship with him. It doesn't in fact affect our salvation. Understand, our position with God never changed. But the issue and what will happen with God in the performance, that's where things are going to be affected. God's going to judge us based upon our performance. And we looked at the impact of holiness. And here's our performance. God says, hey, you know what? I want you to live for me. And what happens when we prioritize our hearts to him, right? God blesses that prioritization. God looks at these, these Israelites and what his expectation is that they're going to have hearts of, of, of sacrifice. They're going to have hearts of, of thankfulness. And because of that thankfulness and because of that prioritization of God, God's going to bless them. Because understand, in the end, his whole goal, what does he want from them? He wants their hearts. That's God's desire for the Israelites, that he would have their hearts, because if he has their hearts, everything else will follow. And see, for us, that's what God wants. Right. He wants our hearts. Amen. And there is a daily battle for our hearts. Yeah. Every day, the devil's trying to lure us away from our relationship with him. So with those guidelines in place, God's going to take his finger off of the pause button. And when he does, it's going to ramp right back up. Because remember, we're right where we were, right before the pause button. We're in Joshua 6, verse 16. It says this, And it came to pass at the seventh time, this is on the seventh day, when the priest blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And then we had the pause. So we're going to pick back up. The pause button is going to be taken off today. But I'm going to read you a parallel passage that I want you to have in mind just to sort of prep our hearts for where we're going in this message. Revelations 11.15 says this. Now understand, this is the angels they've been, that are carrying trumpets, and this trumpet is going to be sounding. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so, being given the command to shout, we join back with the Israelites this morning in our message titled, Judgment Day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us this time to gather around the Word of God. And we just, uh, God, I know that you've spoken to me. I've prayed over this message. I've studied through this message. Uh, Lord, I've reviewed it, and uh, you've spoken to me. I have no doubt. Lord, I'm asking you to now speak through me. Uh, Lord, that the human element would be removed. Uh, Lord, let my, my stumbling tongue not interfere. Help my mind, Lord, not to draw us away. But Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds will be focused on hearing from you and that your Spirit will guide and direct not only the speaking of your Word, but Lord, also the receiving of it. Thank you for today. I pray that you'll be with us, strengthen us, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Genesis chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. So we see here the thrill of victory and we see the agony of defeat. For anybody who's old like me, we remember the, the wide world of sports, right? It's always that guy on the skis. You're always like, oh my word, that looked awful. <laughs> but we see that taking place here with Jericho. But on a massive scale, we're seeing conflict. Conflict. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the root of conflict and we're going to look at the resolution of conflict. And we're going to be using the backdrop of Jericho for that. Now, we recognize that conflict is a part of life. We all know this. If you've lived for any period of time, conflict is just a part of, of being human. In fact, if you go to the Bible, out of the 1,189 chapters that are in the Bible, you'll only find three 
that don't contain conflict. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Revelation 22. We know what happens in Genesis 3. There's where conflict conflicts begins. So we're looking again at the root of conflict and the resolution of conflict. And we look at that root and we think about, wow, you know, conflict as a whole, like I said, we know it's a part of life. And we all are okay with it because we understand that, look, you know, one person's victory is another person's defeat as long as we're on the victorious side. That's when we're good with it, right? We don't like to be the defeated one, but unfortunately sometimes that's, that's our story. But what we need to understand is no matter what the conflict, if it's between a spouse's, a spouse's, spouse's, or parents and children, or if it be between our neighbors or our coworkers that understand every conflict that we will experience on this earth has the same origin. They all come from the same place. Let me prove it to you. The root of conflict. Now, here God delivers this devastating blow to the city of Jericho. Okay? Now, we know as we studied in our work that Jericho is a spiritual picture of the world. We know this to be a fact. We also understand the fact that in this aspect of judgment, what's that, why is that important to us to understand? Because God is going to, again, he's bringing judgment. This is, again, a picture of what's taking place. God's showing us something that's much bigger than just this conflict. If we go to Ephesians chapter number 6, verse number 12, God's going to lay out for us what conflict is. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Again, when you're in a conflict, you are not battling against the person that you think you're fighting. You are fighting the force that is working behind them. That's always the case. And what happens in our conflicts in our lives is because we start to see our enemy as the person in front of us, we become emotional. We lose sight of the goal, which is, what is our, why is our life here? Why are we here? To bring glory to God. Right. It's not about getting a pound of flesh. It's not about making sure that your point is heard. It's about God receiving glory. And sometimes when you deal with an altercation or a frustrating moment, and you go, you know what? I could say this, boy, and I know... I see that spot. I see that weakness. And I'm telling you, if I took that shot, they're going down. I could take that shot. But would that honor God? No. Nah, you know what? Why don't I give some grace? Amen. And they're in their emotions right now. And you know what? They're not my enemy anyway. What if I prayed instead of fought? Recognize the fact that God is always trying to draw us to do what's right. The source of conflict is always going to go back to a throne, a battle over a throne where the anointed cherub who was named Lucifer, God's ultimate creation made perfect. Guess what? He lost his authority. He lost his position because of sin. In Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 15, as we read this in Ezekiel, understand Ezekiel is going to confront a king named Tyrus. Tyrus was a wretched man, but he's not confronting Tyrus. God, in the very same way that whenever Jesus confronts Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan, speaking to Peter's face, he's confronting the force behind him. And God's telling Ezekiel to go confront Tyrus, but you're not confronting him. You're confronting the force behind him. Listen to what he says. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... Son of man, Ezekiel, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum. A way we might say that is, you're the total package. Man, you got it all. You sealest up the sum. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. And that's an important point to understand. 
Lucifer was in the garden of God. That was his, his, his place. That was his, his, his base of operations. And now listen to this description of Lucifer. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. You were, you were just literally made of gems. You were this beautiful creation. Why can he mimic, right? What does the Bible say? He can appear as an angel of, of light, right? Lucifer is a light bearer. That's what his title means. So here he is, this beautiful creature, like nothing else that had ever existed before. And then he goes on to, to describe this. And the gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. It actually sounds like parts of his body were musical instruments. Like literally, he's made of these, he's just, he's this unbelievable creation that no one had ever seen before, that nothing like that had ever existed before. He was, it says in verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub. You were special. When you go to the throne now, you'll find there's four cherubs. At one point in time, let me tell you, there were five. But one, one fell. And I have set thee. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, the stones of fire representing God's holiness. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity is found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, the actions that you've taken, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned, because I will cast thee, says, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Satan. Listen, he's facing God's judgment and he's facing God's curse because of his sin. He was driven by pride. Verse 17, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. You looked at yourself and you said, man, look at the dude. Man. Mm, 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 mm. Ain't nobody in the world like this. Never going to be. Right? That's his heart. And thou was corrupted by wisdom, by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Lucifer, the light bearer, lost his identity, his godly identity, and became Satan, the adversary. And Lucifer, here he is. You know what his job was? His job was to lead the sons of God. To lead the sons of God in worship of God. Now, when you go to Job 38 and you go to verse number 7, this is way back to the foundations of creation. And I want you to hear what the job of the sons of God was to do in Job 38, 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God from the very beginning were supposed to bring glory to God. That was their existence. That was their purpose. They were to be led by Lucifer, the light bearer, the son of the morning. And we get to Isaiah 14. Verses 12 through 14, listen to this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Just as a side note, if you don't have a King James Bible, you're not going to find the name Lucifer in your Bible. It gets removed. But then listen to this. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which thou didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He has a throne, and guess where it is? It's in Eden. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Listen, I'm not going to give up my throne. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. We hear that called the five eyes. I will, I will, I will. It was pride. It was selfish desire that caused his fall. He lost his identity as the light bearer and became literally the prince of darkness, the exact opposite of what he's created to be. 
Understand, God created the sons of God to bring glory to himself. That's the reason why they existed. They fell. They fell. They failed. They were led astray by Satan. So what did God do? He adjusted his plan. He adjusted his plan, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create another son of God that will give me glory. Only this son of God, I'm not going to create it as this unique, unusual being. I'm going to create it actually in my own image and in my own likeness. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now notice this. Remember, at one point in time, Lucifer had this amazing authority, this amazing control. He was the guy in charge. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. You're going to be in charge of this planet and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the everything that moveth upon the earth. You are now in charge of this place. It's yours. Well, I can tell you that Satan heard that and was like, nah, 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 nah. Not on my watch, fellas. That ain't going to happen. And the Bible talks about the subtlety of Satan, right? He worked his way in. And when we get to chapter number three in the book of Genesis, guess what? You see confrontation comes. And sure enough, what does he do? He's going to take these usurpers who are trying to take away his authority. He's like, no, no, no. This planet will worship me. This planet will be ruled by me. And he hatches a plan to go to the sons of God and lure them to sin. And he does so by questioning the very first thing. He says, doth God say? Is that what it says? Does God? Yea, yea, hath God said. That's what it says. Yea, hath God said. And when he says that, what is he doing? Immediately questioning God's word. His attack is always in the same form. It's a choice. You choose. Will you trust and believe God or will you trust and believe me? That's always. And guess what? The same choice is going on today. It's exactly the same thing. Who will we choose to trust? We trust the world or we trust God. Right. Life is going to throw you all kinds of choices every single day. And every day you've got to say, you know what? Am I going to trust, trust my situation and my circumstance and what the world's telling me? Or am I going to know that God is on the throne? And even this, as awful as it is, I'm going to trust that God knows. Yep. And he's allowing it. Trust God or trust the enemy. Listen, the first strike that he took was upon their innocence. And we know how that played out. And what happened because of that? They lost their identity as the sons of God. And when we follow the Bible and we get to Genesis 5-3, listen to this in their offspring. Adam, and it says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. No longer in the image of God, now in the image of fallen man. And for 4,000, about 4,000 years, what happens? There's humanity on the earth. And it's trying to honor God. It's trying to serve God. But you know how many sons of gods are on the earth? Sons of God? Zero. For about 4,000 years, there are no sons of God on this planet. Until. Until a virgin girl Amen. hears. <laughs> and she's going to have a child. Amen. A miraculous birth of a very special child that will come by way of the Holy Ghost of God, will plant the seed of God in her womb, and she'll name him Jesus, and he will be the Son of God. God came to do it himself. Two creations. The third, he said, you know what? I'll go myself. And his life his life in his birth would bring glory to God. 
We read it. We sang it, right? Yeah. Glory to God on the highest. That's what those angelic hosts, that's what they said. That's The heavenly host said, glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. So he would give God glory through his birth. And then at his death, at his death, he would redeem mankind. And this is the coolest thing, man. Through his death and through the redemption of mankind, he would create sons of God that were created to worship God. The very thing God's wanted from the beginning is the sons of God to worship him. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the result, right, is the identity of the sons of God, man. They're given a mission. They're given a mission of a job that they're to do, not only to give God glory, but to live lives that impact those around them, that they might come to know the truth, to become sons of God and bring glory to God. So with the understanding of who it is they are, their identity, and the mission that they've given them, Let me promise you, the adversary, oh, he's not happy. He comes after us because of who it is we are. Not because of us individually, but who we are in Christ. See, he becomes our enemy. The Bible says, this is 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. See, Satan actually does not hate necessarily believers, but he hates us for who it is we represent and the mission that we have been given. God has sent us here to reach the world. And every time you and I live righteously, every time we share the gospel, every time our life touches the life of someone else, the devil loses a little bit of ground. And you remember what it is he wanted so desperately? I will be like the Most High. I will receive the glory of God. I will sit on the throne of God. That's my purpose. And can I tell you that in the not-too-distant future, there is going to be a throne in a rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to rebuild a throne. And there's going to be a world leader who is unbelievably charismatic who seems to just have this amazing ability to do the miraculous. And he's going to show himself to be God. And he's going to come to that throne. And he's going to sit upon that throne claiming to be God. Only to let people know that, guess what? He's not really God. He's called the Antichrist. A Christ, but not the Christ. An antichrist. And what will happen from that day forward, there will be three and a half years of judgment that will come upon this earth like never before. And at the end of that judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth to reclaim his throne. Listen to this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4, speaking of that antichrist. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away. First, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And there's a whole other message in that name, the son of perdition. We're not going to get into it today. Who opposeth and exalted himself above, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what he does. And the Lord's going to come back. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says this. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's what the future 
holds. But until that day, can I tell you that the adversary is going to fight with everything he's got. Everything at his disposal against the sons of God. Doing all that he can to maintain control of this world. His Jericho. His Jericho. He is going to do all that he can to keep it. And as of right now, listen. It's under his control. He's the prince of this world. This is his joint. But that's coming to an end. His days are numbered, praise the Lord. So understanding this root of conflict, let's look now at the resolution of conflict. Now we're going to consider the, the Jericho, the fall here Jericho. We're going to sample this conflict here as our backdrop. We're going to look at it from a historical perspective, a prophetic perspective, and a personal perspective. Let's listen to that in Joshua 6, 20 through 21. <clears throat> So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, with the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. Now, we consider this from a historical perspective first. We understand here this is a cataclysmic moment. We hear the, the trumpet sounding. We hear the voices screaming. We hear the rocks crashing to the ground. There's astonishment on both sides. Everybody's just like, what just happened? And then in that moment, what's going to happen is here you have God channeling his power through his people. Their shout was the very thing. The Bible says faith was the thing that brought the walls down. But what happens is their faith. They followed God. They were, they were, they were obedient to do what he asked them to do. And God's going to bring the walls down. They're going to come into the city, and they're going to face off against the people of Jericho who are rebellious. They stand against God. And what's going to happen? They're no longer going to be those ambassadors for God. They're not reflecting this, the message of God. Now they're going to come through as instruments of righteousness, bringing judgment upon the world. And in doing so, the time, understand, the time passed where there was grace. Judgment is coming. The Bible says that during this time right now, God holds back his wrath. God is holding back what is to come, but he's going to bring it upon those that oppose him. And as we look at this, right, we pictured, we hear that they die by the edge of the sword. And the reason why that's relevant is because in scripture, judgment is represented through the sword. Notice, whenever we look back in Joshua, we were Joshua chapter number 5, verse number 13. And in that verse, we saw the Lord Jesus Christ appear. And in that message, we proved that that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Joshua chapter 6, verse number 1, it tells us that it's him. But remember what he had in his hand, Joshua 5, 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up unto him, saying unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Now understand, God's judgment is not only horrific, but it is inescapable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely inescapable. Take note of the scripture. When we read in Joshua 20, it says, and the wall fell down flat. We normally hear where it says the walls of Jericho come crashing down. It is a single wall that God drops. Why? Well, if all the walls fall down, the people could scatter off into the horizon. But if one falls down, and here comes the army, everyone is being held in place. No one is going to escape. Complete and utter destruction. And notice in Joshua 24, Joshua 6, 24, we get a little additional insight. And it says, and they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. God will listen to this. 
He's going to gather those things that are consecrated unto him and everything else will burn. Do you hear a picture in that? Yeah. Yeah. Prophetic. Let's look at that. Prophetic perspective. Prophetically. We know the Israelites in Scripture, they're a representation of believers. We know the inhabitants of Jericho as well as Jericho are a picture of the world. And we have this clear understanding of that. We read Joshua chapter 6, verses 20 through 21 yet again. I want you to hear it again. Understanding the people representing believers. And here we go. The people in Jericho as well as Jericho itself, a picture of the world. So the people shouted with the priests, blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep, and ass with the edge of the sword. In the setting here, in setting the stage, we went back to that, 11, that Revelations 11. And Revelations 11.15, with the perspective we have, thinking about the prophetic, it says this, And the seventh angel sounded, blew his trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, guess what? Are become, they have fallen, they become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Obviously, this is an account speaking of the second coming of the Lord, but it is eerily familiar to that Joshua 6, 20 through 21. A trumpet sounds, voices are raised, kingdoms change hands right there after a period of judgment upon the earth with an ultimate judgment that will come by way of fire. Remember Joshua. He said it's going to burn. Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. We see this is the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on his throne as the rightful ruler of all creation. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before him, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, judged by fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see when judgment comes upon the earth, it is ultimately going to come in the form of fire. Just like Jericho, guess what? There will be no escape for anyone. The souls of men, women, boys, and girls are going to face the judgment of God. They will not only suffer a physical death, but a spiritual death. As believers, we are born twice, we die once. I'm born physically, and I'm born spiritually. I will only die physically one time because we will live forever. But as a lost person, we will be born once, and we will die twice. Born in our flesh, to die in our flesh, and then suffer a spiritual death. Notice what it said in Revelations 20:14. This is the second death, a physical and a spiritual, an eternal separation from God in complete and utter suffering. And can I tell you that on that day, there will be no tough guys. There'll be nobody going, oh yeah, God, bring it on. Yeah. Right. I'd love to see you come down here and talk to me, God. That's what happens today, right? All kinds of tough guys, people with all kinds of money, standing there professing themselves to be all bad. Zephaniah 1, verses 14 and 18. 
The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. Listen to that. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. All those tough guys, when they stand before the Lord, will shrivel like weeping babies and cry for mercy that they will not receive. Verse 15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day, listen to this, listen to the prophetic picture in this phrase right here, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities, against the high towers. Do you hear that? The trumpet, the alarm, the shout, and the walled cities falling. A picture of Jericho, verse 17. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the days of the Lord's wrath. He's saying, look, you're not going to buy your way out of this one, fellas. Jeff Bezos, I hate to break it to you, brother. All the money in the world, pile it up, and guess what? It's going to burn up with a fervent heat because it means nothing to God. He does not care. It will not help you. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. And remember how God brought judgment to Jericho, Joshua 6, 24, and they burnt the city with fire, and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. They were protected with God. And it will only be the vessels of honor that God is going to spare as He's going to place them in His love and care. Mm. Those who submitted themselves to the Lord and were redeemed, made righteous in Christ through the blood of the Lamb, which gets us to the personal perspective. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as born-again believers who have been redeemed and from our sinful past, we go, wow, you know what? Man, God's judgment. Whew. Good thing I don't have to worry about that. Mm. Hate to break it to you. There's an issue. Can I warn you today that, that our judgment day is getting closer and closer? The judgment of the world, no doubt about it, but also for us. And the majority of people that are in our community, the people that we see, the people that we know, majority of them are, guess what? They're going to face a Jericho-like judgment, right. only much, much worse. Yeah. Worse than we can possibly imagine. And because of that, listen, I want you to hear what Paul says. And this is a verse that many times people take out of context. Listen to what Paul says. He's trying to implore the church at Corinth. He's trying to change their way of living because Corinth is, was off course, and he's trying to redirect them and get their perspective right. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Oh, my goodness. He's saying, hey, you know what? The terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord. You're going to face the terror of the Lord. And we go, whoa. The terror of the Lord. Those poor lost people. Oh, my goodness. Facing the terror of the Lord. But I hate to break it to you. That's a saved audience that he's talking to. He's talking to the church. If we go back and we read verse number 10 to get the context of verse number 11, we realize what's going on. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not for the non-believer. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what we're going to face, we persuade men, for we are made manifest unto God, and I also trust are made manifest in your conscience. So the terror that he's referring to is the terror that will be experienced by those who are redeemed, 
those who will face their failures as Christians in their service to the Lord. You and I are going to stand accountable to God for the good and the bad that we do. And we go, well, yeah, I I mean, I understand what it's going to be like. Recognize the fact that this is our Savior with love in His eyes, and He's going to assess what we did with our Christian life. I saved you on this day. What did you do from that day forward? And He's going to look into our hearts and know our thoughts and our failures, and we're going to know that He knows everything. Everything. And we're going to stand with unbelievable conviction before Him as He shows us how we avoided helping those who were broken because it wasn't convenient for us. How we focus so much attention on pursuing success at our job that we really didn't pursue our success as a Christian. We lost sight of that. And we go, oh, you know what? We look at our life and we neglected our responsibility of being godly parents because we were too tired. Didn't fit what we wanted. We look into our lives and we go, you know what? What about the fact that I was so focused on the recognition of people that I lost sight of the image of God. The people were supposed to see in me. I made my life about myself. I forgot that it was supposed to be about Him. Or we prioritized what we wanted out of our lives. And what we thought it should be as opposed to what God saved us to be. We allowed the lost to slip off into eternity because we were too filled up with ourselves. The reality is we're going to see this as born again, redeemed children of God. We will face the terror of the Lord. We'll see it in His face, in the disappointment, in His eyes, as He reviews our life after salvation and shows us how many times we prioritize what we wanted over him. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm preaching to me. But I bet some of y'all can identify with it as well. And the worst thing is, knowing that at that moment we can't go back and do it again. That we got one shot. One shot. As we replay all the opportunities that God gave us and people that crossed our lives all the ones that we squandered because we were too selfish. So we will face, absolutely, the terror of the Lord. But it will be nothing like what the lost will face. Nothing like it. Because understand, for us, with us, there's an undercurrent of hope. Now, not because of us. It's not hope because of us, no. (laughs) Because remember, I talked about our, 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 our position or our performance, okay? Our position is not up for grabs. That's determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross and he saved your soul, your position was established. That's done. Amen. But it's the performance part. And understand, this, we shift out of performance. Now we shift to position. Ephesians 4, 30 says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You are saved till you're redeemed. And even though we failed God, thank the Lord he did not fail us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, it's why we're saved, because of God's mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, 
when we didn't deserve it, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace he is saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, in the future, when we're looking forward today, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. He would show his grace to us in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace he saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It was never about you. You could never have earned your salvation. This is all about him. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it is with that confidence in our Savior that we're to live. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. (laughs) Knowing what the future holds. Hey, man, we go, okay. There's security in Christ. And knowing that future and having that confidence is a wonderful thing, but not for the sake of the peace of mind, though that's certainly important. But the reason why it's important that we're constantly looking to the future is because of the mission that God's given us, the rescue mission that God's given us. We're not saved to live a life for ourselves. We're saved for the fact that our life is supposed to impact someone else. Our life is supposed to touch someone else. Those that are on the path to destruction. Notice that whenever the Lord left, this is what he left in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This is, how it th- this is how he brought things to an end. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Go out and reach the world, teach them, train them, baptize them, disciple them, develop them. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. The end of the world. What's he saying? The end of the world is coming. I'm telling you, this thing has a finite time and it's going to draw to an end. And when the last grain drops out of that hourglass, it's going to be over. You will have no other shot but the one you have right now. And I'm telling you to be aware of it because guess what? The time is coming to an end. The end is coming. There's no doubt about it. And he's given us a command of exactly what we're to do. We're supposed to be reaching the world. We hear that and we go, yes. And time is running out. I'm literally, today could be my last day. So why in the world is that not our top priority? Why isn't that what gets us out of bed? How do we sit beside someone at work and not know their spiritual condition? How do we meet people and have no thought of them because we're so consumed with ourselves, consumed with our shopping, consumed with our, with our thoughts, with our emotions, all the stuff that we want out of life? When we stand before the Lord one day at the judgment seat, man, it's not going to matter. If you've got the shoes that you wanted for Christmas, you're not going to care. If you've got a brand new Lamborghini, whatever you've got, the greatest thing in the world, a multi-million dollar mansion, whatever it is, it's going to get judged by fire. It will be gone. It will be ashes. It will be destroyed. And the only things that are eternal are the souls of men. And that's not where we put our focus. And it doesn't make sense. Why is that not our top priority? Why aren't we not desperately sharing the gospel with people around us? Why are we so worried about what we're going through? And allow it to consume us so much that we lose sight of what it is we're supposed to be. It's so easy. The devil, man, we make it so easy for him. He sets us up. And we step into the trap. Day day after day yet God has told us what's to come why why well the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3 he gives us a little insight into the future he tells us this in verse number one this know also that in the last days and I'm just telling you if there were ever last days they are now yes. we can look at the world around us and there are so many indicators that time is coming to a close 
perilous times shall come. Verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of their own selves. Then he gives us a laundry list of sin. All the things people are involved in today. We get to verse number 4. And how does he close verse 4? Lovers of pleasures. More than lovers of God. Amen. Our hearts, which God is desperately after, are given to the world. We're about fulfilling ourselves and what it is that we want and what it is we desire and our dreams and our hopes and totally discounting what it is God's called us to be. But I can just tell you, man, if we got everything we wanted out of this life, everything you could possibly imagine, you live the richest life in the world. When it all burns up and you stand before the Lord empty-handed and the souls of men and women and boys and girls are burning and their eternity is set and you can't do anything about it, you would beg for one day to go back. If I could just get one day to go back, if I could just go back and talk to my friend, if I could just go back and talk to my neighbor. God, if you could just send me back one day, I would be serious about it this time. This would be it. I would do something. I really, really would. But it ain't going to happen, man. There's no coming back. We're here. That's it. This is our shot. This is our shot. God's trying to tell us, hey, you know what? Get serious about this thing. Because when judgment comes, there will be no survivors. Absolutely none. And the adversary relishes in the pain of humanity. He relishes in the thought of people burning in hell. Because he hates God. He hates God. And we're the sons of God. And our suffering brings him great joy. So we understand the root of conflict. Then we look at this and we go, you know what? Whether it's from a historical perspective, a prophetic perspective, or a personal perspective, the resolution of conflict is only, only through a relationship with God. That is the only place. As I've been talking to you guys on Wednesday nights, using that magnet as an example, the magnet is always pulling the iron shavings. That's God. And he's trying to draw humanity. And the only time the tension stops is when the two meet. There will always be conflict until we surrender. Amen. Believers, hey, you're a born-again child of God today. You got sin in your life. Guess what you're doing? You're pulling away from God and you feel his draw. No doubt about it. It's called conviction. Chastening. He's drawing you back. Surrender, man. Surrender. And if you're lost today, you're watching this recorded, you don't have a relationship with God. You feel Him drawing you. You just have to surrender. Amen. If you have a relationship with Him today, praise God, but let your life make a difference. Use it to reach somebody else. And if you don't have a relationship with Him, sooner than later you need to establish that. Can I just tell you this, that judgment day is coming. It could be today. Let's take advantage of every moment that we have. Stop being so consumed with ourselves and set our eyes and affections on things above instead of the things on this earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what you've shown us. And Lord, the urgency that you've planted in your word to tell us what it is we should be doing. 
God, I do pray that, Lord, if no one else heard today, that, God, my heart will change. God, that you'll make me more adamant than I've ever been in my entire life. But, God, I do pray for all of us. I pray for us as a body. I pray for us as born-again believers. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I know Christ. I know I'm a believer. I have no doubt about it. But I'm not where I need to be in regards to my, to my witness. My life is not speaking like it should. I'm not actively working as hard as I should. Pastor, pray for me that I'll be a better witness in the days to come because time is running out. If that's you today, I want to pray for you that God will use you. Raise your hand and say, you know what? God, use me. I'm not where I need to be, but I know I need to do more. Say, look, you know, Lord, yes, amen, amen. I see all those hands. Praise God. And I'm going to pray for us that we'll be a better witness. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, listen, you are limited, man. This could be your last chance on this earth. Even if God does not bring judgment today, you could die. You could be watching this record and say, you know, I got all the time in the world. Everybody that died today thought they had more time. But we're not promised tomorrow. The Bible says life is but a vapor. It appears for a short time and then it vanishes away. If you're not saved today, you have an opportunity to come to Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity to, win, to, to hear and to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us this time. And why do you pray for my brothers and sisters? Lord, that have a desire to serve you. Lord, that have a desire to give their hearts and their lives for your glory. A life, uh, Lord, that would, that would uh, bring sons of God to you. Oh, I do pray for them, Lord, that you'll empower them. Lord, help them, Father, to, back, to fight the good fight, to surrender to the Spirit, not battle the flesh. And that, God, you would empower them and use them for your glory. And for those today that don't know where they stand with God, they need a relationship with you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you say, I don't know where I stand with God, but I want to know. If that's you today, you say, look, I don't know. I don't know. I'm asking you to raise your hand real quick. I'm not going to call you up, but I do want to pray for you. Amen. I see that hand. Anybody else? Say, you know what? I do not know. Amen. I see that hand. Anybody else? Say, look, I do not know, but I want to know. Amen. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, there's not a religious ceremony. This is not a magic prayer. This is a broken heart surrendering to a God that's calling. And if you know God's calling you, He's asking you to surrender. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. I'm going to lead you in prayer. It won't be the words of the prayer. Don't hang on to the prayer. The prayer means nothing. God's listening to your heart. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Again, you're not speaking to me. You're speaking to Him. Surrender your heart. Speak to Him in your heart and mind. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am so sorry. I realized today for the first time that I am going to face a judgment. Maybe never have I ever seen it the way I did today. And I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to save my soul. I trust you as my Savior, and I pray that you help me to live for you. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.